Great. Well, let's get to our study in 2 Timothy 1. 1. I'm sorry. Just, uh, that's just who I am. What am I going to do? We'll get to verse 2 soon. Um, we're going to kind of launch from 2 Timothy to 1 Thessalonians a little bit later. But for now, we're going to continue on our study of the apostles and how for several weeks now we've looked at the apostles of the Old Testament. And if you remember, we've did a parallel study, beginning with the Old Testament prophets, how they parallel in so many ways with New Testament apostles. They are alike. They, they are alike in many ways, save one. There's one principal difference between the Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. We'll get to that quickly. But looking at their similarities, both Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles were mouthpieces of God. They carried God's messages, God's revelations. They carried the oracles, literally the burdens of God. You have a burden, you want to share something, it's heavy on your heart, and you want to tell, it's so heavy, so burdensome, that you have to let it out, you have to tell your friends, tell your parents, tell anyone. You just post it on Zenga because somebody has to know what, what's inside of you. Well, the, the, the burden of God was given to the Old Testament prophets. And they were to uh, proclaim it, herald it, shout it out in the streets for men and women to hear the message of God. Just like the New Testament apostles. They were God's mouthpieces. So much so that when they spoke, God was speaking. Even when Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I say not the Lord, he's not saying what Christ said is authoritative, what I'm saying is just my opinion. He's saying what I'm saying now, Christ never addressed. But I'm telling this to you now as an apostle of Christ, and my words are in equal authority with the words of Christ. I want you to know you will not find this in the Gospels. You will not find this in red letters because Christ never mentioned or addressed this issue. But as an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent by him, what I say is authoritative to you. And if you reject me, you're rejecting Christ. If you will not listen to me, you're not listening to God. He's saying his opinion in a sense that he's proclaiming this truth, but equal in authority with the words of Christ. So just like the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles had equal authority as heralds of God. At the same, also, God commanded prophets, we addressed this briefly last, last week, to obey certain personal life commands in their lives. God commanded the apostles to live a certain way uniquely for each apostle, each prophet. A prophet sometimes became quite dramatic and he acted out his message as directly commanded by God. In Isaiah 20, to show uh, God's perspective of Israel, God commanded Isaiah to walk around naked for three years. Right? Walk around naked. So he'll preach God's word and to show them their true state before God, how God viewed them. We looked at last week how Ezekiel laid on his left side for 390 days, left, laid on one side, and for 40 days on the, on the other side, saying how many days the city of, uh, of Jerusalem will be laid siege. And all that time he was cooking on a pot over a human dung to show God's wrath and judgment against this land. Ezekiel 5, God told Ezekiel to shave his head to shave his head bald, to shave his beard, divide up the hair, 
third of it burn up, right? third of it scatter, and few strands to tuck away in the fold of his garment, and the rest to burn up in the fire, to show how there will be a remnant of Israel that God will save for himself, but rest to be destroyed by God. One of the saddest things that God told Ezekiel to do was, he revealed to Ezekiel that his wife would die, on the very same day, Babylon will lay siege against the holy city of Jerusalem. His wife will die, a wife that he loved dearly. But Ezekiel was commanded not to mourn. He must not grieve. He must not shed a tear. And by doing that, he was demonstrating God's response to the destruction of Jerusalem. As just Jerusalem is destroyed, God is not shedding a tear. God is not mourning. God is not grieving because... Jerusalem is destroyed because of their sins. So God told Ezekiel, do not cry. So God gave prophets exact details, exact commands on how they are to live and conduct themselves in certain ways. Uh, Maybe the most uh, memorable one is uh, one in Hosea, right? We talked about that last week. Hosea, I want you to marry. As a single guy, think about it, right? God comes to you and I have a girl for you. Lord, who is it? Who is this dear, you know, gift of God you will give to me? Well, her name is Gomer. (laughs) What? (laughs) So I want you to marry Gomer and preach this message. God, how about if I just preach the message? Why do I have to marry Gomer and preach the message? Well, that's my command to you. And then she's unfaithful. She commits adultery, prostitution. And God says, I want you to marry her again. To demonstrate my unfailing love for Israel. That though they are unfaithful to me, I will be faithful to them. Just like the apostles. God gave apostles clear commands on how they are to live. So that they might uphold the message of God. And affirm it by their lives. So we know those commands throughout the Gospels, throughout the Epistles. God told the apostles to be holy, to be separate, <clears throat> to suffer nobly, to be courageous, to not, to not to fight back, not to mock or threaten, not to revile in return when they suffer, but to rejoice in suffering. And all the apostles suffered for the gospel of Christ. They were all martyred for the faith except save one, Apostle John. They all died for Christ. They never fought back. The only difference between the apostles and prophets is this. God never told the prophets to command the nation of Israel to to imitate them. There was no command to the nation of Israel to imitate the prophets, just to hear their message spoken and lived out. Now, I'm sure there were guys around John the Baptist who had a leather belt around their waist, right? Who ate, you know, locusts in the wilderness, but that was just because, you know, that's human beings, right? We want to impersonate or imitate people that we admire. But that was not a directive that God gave to John the Baptist, nor the people of Israel. The people of Israel were to hear John the Baptist, heed his message, see his lifestyle, and repent and trust in Christ, who was to come. Apostles were different in that they were to model the true Christian faith. And believers were commanded to imitate their faith, to follow their pattern of life. 
So the apostles commanded the church and through the scriptures command us to be proactive followers of Christ. Meaning not just listen to the message, but we are to examine their lives, their conduct, their practice, and we are to follow in their footsteps as they have followed the footsteps of Christ. In this way, the apostles and prophets were distinct. Apostles were called to reproduce themselves and make disciples of Christ. Not just teach doctrine, right? Not just herald God's message, but also to impart their lives, impart their hearts, impart their core values, and as it's flushed out in their lives, to live it out among God's people so that they might imitate them. This is the final stewardship given to the apostles. In our previous several weeks, we've gone through the first three, how the apostles were entrusted with the true knowledge of God through Christ, how the apostles were entrusted with the gospel of Christ, that they were given the responsibility of receiving the gospel, protecting it from error, and proclaiming the gospel to the whole world. Third, they were entrusted with the stewardship of the mystery of Christ's church, where through their revelation, along with the prophets, they become the foundation of the church, New Testament church, with Christ, the chief cornerstone. And through the apostles, the mystery that was kept hidden for for ages, the prophets couldn't see it, the kings couldn't see it, revealed to us that Gentiles are now grafted in into Christ. And now we are co-heirs with Christ. We're members of God's family. We're in God's household. God is our Abba Father. Right? He's not a foster dad. He's not a stranger. No, He's not just our King, our Lord and Master. He is our Daddy. We can go to Him as Daddy because we've been grafted in and we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Since we're in Christ, we are now His children. This mystery is revealed to the apostles and they were to give it to us. And they have been faithful to transmit that message to us. The final stewardship was to model genuine Christ-likeness and to have us imitate them in their practice. They were entrusted to model the Christian faith. Model it. Live it out. And have us imitate how they live. Right? So it's great. We don't have to shave our heads. Right? We don't have to shave our beards. We don't have to eat locusts and honey and live in the wilderness and caves. Praise God for that. We don't have to walk around naked, right? That's Old Testament prophets. That's not true godliness. That's not true holiness. Living a monkish life as if that's what God wanted for us. We know how we ought to live by the clear example of Christ and also the pattern of life modeled to us by the apostles. For our intents and purposes, by looking at the apostle Paul, by looking at his life, we are to pattern our life after him. 1 Corinthians 4.16 I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul urges us not just to follow his doctrine, but to imitate his life. Not impersonate the Apostle Paul, right? But imitate his life and ministry. 1 Corinthians um, 11.1 Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As I imitate Christ, you imitate me. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me. 
1 Thessalonians 1, 6, Paul commends the believers at Thessalonica because they became imitators of us and of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, we gave you ourselves as an example to imitate. So what we need to do continually is not just pursue the doctrines of Paul. I mean, I say this again and again. Paul's doctrine is worthy of our attention and study and our apprehension. But we must, at the same time, with equal strength and equal time devoted to this, pursue after Paul's life. And Western Christianity, where we fall short is following after Paul's life, the life of the apostles. We might look at the older generation uh, Christians or Christians in other countries and maybe in our pride look down on them because of their compromise in doctrinal matters. We're not justifying compromise in doctrine. And yet we are blind to how we have compromised in our own lives in following their pers- these apostles' example in their, in their lives. So that's what we want to do. This is the application side of our study that I'll take up rest of the rest of today and next week and maybe a week longer. Where should we go? We can go to many places in the scriptures to look at the Apostle Paul's life and um, appropriate example for us to imitate. We can go to the Book of Acts. We can definitely go to Saint Corinthians or Philippians. I thought about going to Second Timothy, but we're going to study this book, so it's kind of redundant for me, for us, to study Second Timothy, and we're going to do it in weeks, months, years to come. So we're going to go to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3. We get an up-close and personal view of Apostle Paul. I first studied these three chapters in my Greek class many years ago at the Master's Seminary. And I was um, so impacted by that study, I, by God's grace, began to appropriate these principles immediately into my life and ministry. So if you've been at Cornerstone for any amount of time, these points will be familiar to you. These points will not be new or revolutionary or something that's, Difficult to, to understand. If you've been at Cornerstone for any, any amount of time, any length, more than a year, you would say, wow, I, I, I see these principles because they're an essential part of Cornerstone Bible Church. I pray and hope that you would, you would say, I see this in Pastor James's life. I see it in Bob and Marcus. I see it in my flock shepherd. I see it in my ministry leaders. I see it in my small group shepherd. Not only that, you know what? I see it in the believers of our church because Cornerstone believes that ministers are not just a few guys that are up front, but everyone is a minister. That every single believer is an instrument in the Redeemer's hands for the exaltation of God, edification of the church, and evangelism of the lost. So as we go through these points one by one, I am humbly confident, I hope I'm not disappointed, I am humbly confident that they'll be familiar to many of you. Just a quick background on 1 Thessalonians 
1, 2, and 3. I'm going to do a light speed background study of this epistle. Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16, they were at a city called Philippi. They came upon Lydia, the first convert in Macedonia. And after that, they came upon, stumbled upon a slave girl who had a demonic power of divination, and she was very profitable for her owners. Apostle Paul had it with her, exclaiming to all that they were the servants of the Most High God. He didn't want a demon to testify of their our true identity as, as messengers of God. He rebuked that demon, cast that demon out of her. The owners of the slave girl were so incensed because their source of income was was has gone away. They arrest Paul, Silas, and Timothy, arrest these men, and they attack them before the magistrates. In Acts 16.23, it says, they inflicted many blows upon them. They beat them to a pulp, put them in the inner prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks, Acts 16. And remember, you remember this, right? The midnight hour, what, what are Paul and Silas and Timothy, what are they doing? They're singing hymns to God. They're praising God. At that moment, an angel comes down, a, a miracle occurs, earthquake, the doors open up, the jailer is afraid because he thought the, the prisoners have escaped, and that means his life will be, uh, ex- he'll be, he'll be executed. And Paul says, no, don't kill yourself, we're still here. And he calls upon the jailer to repent, for if he believes, he'll be saved, him and his whole household. They're all, the jailer repents, the household is saved, they are baptized. Next morning, the magistrates of Philippi realized that Paul's a Roman citizen, and they broke Roman law of punishing him without a fair Roman trial. So they asked him to leave. In that context of shame, embarrassment, suffering, humiliation, uh, this missionary group, they go to our next city, and that's Thessalonica. They ministered there for three months. Great ministry of the gospel. But the Jews have followed them to the city to persecute them. And hurriedly, they need to leave the city. After about a year, they're in Corinth, and Paul is concerned about this church that they left in such a hurry. He's not certain how they're doing in the Lord, So he sent Timothy to find out their spiritual condition. Timothy has returned to Paul, and Timothy has great news. He says, Paul, they're doing great. They love the Lord. They're holding on to the doctrines that you taught. They remember your example. They're imitating you as you imitate Christ. And Paul, other churches... These savage wolves have infiltrated them and turned them against you and have been led astray to false teaching and false leaders, but not the Thessalonians. They're good, good brothers and sisters. They love you and they can't wait to see you again. So Paul is writing First Thessalonians in response to this great news. And in chapter 3 he says, Now we live. Right? When I was in anguish, when I was worried, when I was in torment, praying for you, concerned about your spiritual welfare, I was at the point of spiritual death. He's talking about how in agony he was, not knowing how they were doing. But now that Timothy has come to them, and with great report, good news about their, their, how they're doing, he says, now I'm alive, now I'm living. And he writes this letter in response to this good report that Timothy brought with him from Thessalonica. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see... 15 
15 key marks of Paul's ministry, Paul's life and ministry, 15 key marks of Paul's life and ministry, worthy of our attention and imitation. Worthy of our attention and imitation. Now, this, these points are directly relevant to all the leaders of our church. If you're in any, any form and fashion, a leader of our church, this is for us to pay attention to and imitate but also for every believer because we're all ministering. We're all serving. We're all being used by God to others. And I think for parents, I think these principles have direct relevance as parents to our children. So let's go through these one by one. Number one, chapter one, verse two. Paul said, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The first mark is that Paul viewed ministry to people as a privilege given to him by God. Paul viewed ministry to people as a privilege given to him by God, that whenever he was able to minister to people the gospel of Christ, ministry of God's word, he considered a privilege. Therefore, when he prayed for God's people, his prayers began and were sprinkled with thanksgiving. He constantly thanked God for these believers, for these Christians, and considered a privilege because he understood that their salvation was God's work. It's God's gift. It's a miracle of God. And it's a privilege for a minister of the gospel to be a part of this miraculous process, miraculous work of God. It's how we parents feel when we have a child enter into our family. We thank God because we no one understands as Christians that this child's soul was in God's hands. And this soul has now been entrusted to us for us to love and care and teach and raise in the fear and instruction of the Lord. So a good Christian parent would always give thanks to God for this child because it's a gift of God. Likewise for a Christian minister, they see ministry to people as a privilege and not as a burden. How easily we forget this. How easily we overlook um, God's people and we fail to understand the miracle that God has worked in their lives and saving them. And what a great privilege that we have to be a, a small part in in giving them the gospel or encouraging them in the faith or helping them to grow in holiness. This is one of the greatest privileges given to any man, any woman. So if that is understood by us rightly, then our prayers would be very similar to the Apostle Paul. Where when we pray for people, we would not, you know, be grumbling and complaining. We would not be arguing and debating. When we pray for people, our prayers would be just, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you for these people. I mean, this was Paul's this was Paul's heart because 
it wasn't just him, you know, acting, you know, spiritual, acting like an apostle should. But you see this throughout his letters, throughout his most intimate writings. Romans 1, 8 and 9, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. God is my witness that without ceasing, I mention you. God is my witness. God knows. I appeal to God's omniscience that every time I pray, I pray for you and I thank God for you. 1 Corinthians 1, 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1, 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you. My prayer is with joy. I pray with joy when I pray for you. My prayer is filled with thanksgiving to God. What a privilege. Colossians 1, 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Philemon 4, chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. This mindset, we need to imitate the Apostle Paul. Spawn mindset here. It radically uh, changes our perspective of ministry. It, it, it stops becoming about me and about my, my needs and my wants and my insecurities and my desires and, and a, a human man-centered perspective. It, it changes judging one another and condemning one another and accusing one another. It goes to a God-centered perspective where we consider it just a radical privilege to serve God's people that are under our care. Our care. We see our ministry as a stewardship of God entrusting souls to us. So our prayers should imitate this. So, First of all, in your prayers with your elders, your pastors, your shepherds, anyone over you, you should thank God. Right? Do you thank God? Right? Some of you don't, huh? Do you, do you thank God for your elders, for your pastors, for your shepherds? Wives, do you thank God for your husbands? You know how hard it is to be a leader, right? As Christ is the head of the church, the man is the head of the husband is the head of the wife. You know how hard it is to be a leader? Children, do you thank God for your parents? What would your life be like without your mom, without your dad? So we need to start with thanking God for our spiritual leaders and consider what a great gift they are and the gifts of God given to us for our spiritual benefit where they look after our souls. No one in this world looks after our souls except the spiritual leaders that God has given to Christ's church pastors and elders and shepherds and leaders. And then on our part, if you have any ministry in the church, and we all do, in our prayers for one another, we must begin with thanks. Giving thanks to God because God is the author of salvation. God is the perfecter of your faith. God is the one who has entrusted this person and given us this opportunity to minister to them. Secondly, for Paul, ministry was life on life. Ministry was life on life. Paul didn't have ministerial or professional relationships. He had ministry relationships, but all his ministry relationships were personal, intimate, 
life-on-life, heart-to-heart relationships. Paul didn't minister behind, from, a behind, from behind a desk. He was not a teacher or a professor teaching from a distance. He ministered up close and personal, wholly transparent. Chapter 1, verse 5b, second part of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among your sake. So he repeats this refrain again and again and again. You know. He appeals to God, to, to the church again and again. Acts 20, 18 and 19. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Acts 20, 34. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own necessities. That I coveted no one's silver or gold. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, we have suffered and been shamefully treated as you know. Verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. Verse 10, you are witnesses. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, you yourselves know that we were not idle, we were not lazy when we were with you. He appealed to their knowledge of himself. Showing us, telling us that for Paul, ministry was not a professional punching in and out. It was not managing his, his, his uh, persona. It was not managing his speech. It was life-on-life ministry with the people that he loved. His life was an open book. Therefore, one of the first hang-ups we need to get over if we want to be a good minister of Christ is this idea of privacy. So if you are a spiritual leader and you're a private person, you need to give up one. You can't have both. You want privacy, then you don't want to minister. You want to minister, you want to encourage, you want to share the gospel. Paul's model that he set for us, an example that we ought to follow is sharing the gospel and life. Right? Sharing gospel and life. Why? Look at chapter 1, verse 5. For your sake. For your sake. Effective ministry is not how well, not just how well you know your people, but how well your people know you. Right? Does that make sense? Right. If I'm ministering, let's say I'm ministering to Randy and Tiff, and oh, I know Randy and Tiff. I know how old they are, how long they've dated and married and all that stuff. That's, that's stage one of ministry. But stage two is how well does Randy and Tiff know me, my wife, our family life, our, our, our children, my, my hopes and dreams, my disappointments, my heartaches, my difficulties. That is true ministry for their benefit. Why is this so critical? Because... It is easy for leaders to just perform, right? Just to share our best, share our strengths, hide our weaknesses, a minister from a distance. But what benefits us, it's not just coming on Sundays and seeing Pastor James at his best. This is my best one hour of the whole week, right? You're catching me at my finest hour. It benefits you, you know, at a grade one level, but what really benefits you is when you were to see me, maybe not at my worst, right? But me at my average, 
or you see all my blemishes. You see all my wrinkles, all my gray hair. You see me, and you know, you know what that would do? That would encourage you. Man, like, uh, God uses a weak guy like that? God uses a selfish, like, man, I, I know the scriptures better than him. I can communicate better. I, I, I pray more than him. Wow, he's really messed up. I would encourage you, <laughs> right? Because that's the reality of ministry. I was listening to an interview of uh, Piper and MacArthur at the Desiring God conference uh, two weeks ago. And great Q&A because the questions weren't from the congregation. It was prepared questions by, I think, another pastor. What happens when you open up the questions to the congregation? People come up and, you know, the tongues really cease, you know. When's the tribulation going to happen? And when's the millennial kingdom? And I'm sitting there, just read his books. Like, you know, don't spend this precious time asking about tongues. He spent 50 pages on it, you know, and many of his books. Just read his books or hear his sermons. These questions were about their personal lives. And Piper was sharing about how he went through a depression that lasted for several years. Like one day after church on Sunday, he started crying and didn't stop crying for several years. I was so encouraged. <laughs> right? I was so, because I see Piper as this like, you know, this man of steel. Right? This man of conviction, unwavering in his faith. Right, that's MacArthur, right? But Piper is a touchy-feely, soft guy, tender to the Holy Spirit, and he gets discouraged, and he was depressed for years. Now, seeing that part of him encourages me, and seeing that part of the leaders encourages you. That's why, as leaders, you can't, and when someone wants to get involved in your life, you can't give them the Heisman, right? We say that joke, right? The Heisman, right? <laughs> right, you gotta, you can't, you gotta, People that are under your care, you got to open arms. Be vulnerable, be transparent, and share your life for their sake. Because what they need is to see you in real person. And your, your insecurity might be, no, I don't want to I don't share my weaknesses. And uh, you got to get over that if you want to be an effective minister of Christ. Right. So first, of all, first of all, view ministry as a privilege, life on life. Third, beyond teaching, Apostle Paul sought to be a model Christian, to produce model believers. If you want to raise up model believers, teaching is not enough. I think like Master Seminary guys, we have this wrong idea. If we just preach great sermons, it will just automatically happen. Believers will grow. And don't we all wish it was so easy? If I could just preach a perfect sermon... Every Sunday, maturity, sanctification, which is automatically happen. No, that's not the biblical formula. That's not the, that's not the race that Paul ran. That's not the example that Paul set for us. Paul sought to model truth. Because that was the only way to raise up model Christians. First, chapter 1, verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You became model Christians to this whole region. Why? Because you imitated me as I imitated Christ. So it began with Christ. Christ came and He didn't minister from behind the, chair, behind the table. 
He wasn't a teacher or a professor. He was a shepherd and he modeled godliness to us. And as apostles, we saw his godliness and we modeled that truth so that you might see it and you are modeling it yourself. So for Paul, his greatest teaching tool was himself. He used the most powerful teaching method, the method of modeling. He conducted himself in all areas in above reproach manner so that his life would confirm his teaching. He did nothing that would, which would undermine sound doctrine, nothing that would contradict the life of Christ and repeatedly points to his own example as he teaches the word of God. He teaches them about diligence. You should never be dependent on others. You should be self-sufficient practically, physically. You should never live your life in laziness and as a parasite, whether it's government or family or friends. You should work hard with your own hands and be self-sufficient because that's a good example to the world for the gospel. And he said, you know what that's like? Because that's how I lived when I was with you. 2 Thessalonians 3.7 You yourselves know that we were not idle when we were with you. I worked hard. I was diligent. I provided for my own needs. I was self-sufficient. I had a right to live off the gospel, but I set this example to get a reward from God, but also to be an example to you that you ought not be lazy and be dependent upon others. He pointed to himself. That's what he told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 16. Let no one circumvent you. Let no one katafroneo look down upon you because of your age. But set an example, Timothy. Do you not know that's the most powerful teaching method? Don't just tell them, show them. And he lists with, with, with surgical precision on how he are to model Christianity to the church at Ephesus. So for Paul was himself, and so for us, our first ministry is ourselves, our character, our attitude, our family, our relationships, our decisions. So if we want Cornerstone to be a mediocre church, then I just teach, we go have snacks, we just teach, and we go our separate ways. You have flocks, right? You just hide behind the Bible, right? And no questions, no life on life, no sharing of life together. Just hide behind the Bible. We want a mediocre church. But if we want a model church, then we need to model Christianity. Show our people our strengths, all the more our weaknesses in the areas where we fall short. So I would say that's the greatest need of Cornerstone. For Bob and Marcus and I, all the flock shepherds and leaders to be more holy, more humble, more Christ-like, right? I mean, I need to work on my grammar, but that's not the greatest need of Cornerstone. I need to maybe work on my humor a little bit. Maybe not, right? Maybe. You know, I need to work on my communication skills or what I polish my introductions. Come on. Is that what inspires us? Is that what challenges us? No, it's life. What the greatest need of our church not more polished communicators, it's, it's what it's humble men and women living out the gospel in their lives and sharing it with others. 
Number four, Apostle Paul modeled faithful ministry, faithful and bold ministry in the, in the midst of personal pain and loss. So this is, um, this is powerful. Paul shared his weaknesses. Paul shared his heartaches, his, his pain. And he modeled faithfulness and ministry in the midst of personal trial. In the midst of personal pain, he modeled persevering ministry. Chapter 2, verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I will venture to guess that he had still had scab wounds in his face, in his arms. He was still limping from the beating that he received from the uh, soldiers at Philippi. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He was shamefully treated. He didn't hide that embarrassment from the church at Thessalonica because he wanted them to see Paul in this respectable, glorious light. He didn't hide that so that they would respect him more or honor him more. For him, what was more important was sharing honestly his whole life but showing steadfastness in ministry so all the blow by blow embarrassing details of their mistreatment their beating and their arrest he shared it with the Thessalonian church yeah this mark is yeah he got me good you know uh, yeah they spat at me here and they punched me here and they called me these names and we're treated as common criminals we're, we're, we're fastened to the walls of an inner prison that was Paul's uh, high model ministry. That's what we are to follow. Uh, ministry when the waters are still. It's easy. Situational minister. And ministry where you just share uh, the good things of life. You know, that's, that's deceptive. And your people will catch on. All your flock shepherds, they'll catch on. If you share, wow, three months ago, it was so hard for us, so hard for me, so hard for our family. Six months ago, that was really difficult. Your friends, people that are close to you will say, you know what, we prayed together three months ago, and you didn't share anything. Wait a minute, six months ago, we had that intense fellowship, and you, I poured out my heart, and you said everything was fine with you. Man, you were lying to me. You're deceptive. How can I trust how you're doing now if you tell me six months, six months ago you're struggling? That's not what Paul modeled. Paul modeled honest sharing of his difficulties and faithful ministry in its context. I don't want to, you know, but I, that's what I try, I try to do in, our, in, in my life, in my ministry. You know, I, I got permission from my wife to share this, so I can share this. But it was like six months ago, I had a lunch meeting with Gary. We're having lunch together. So it was planned, you know, weeks ahead. And we get in the car and Gary's like, how are you doing, James? How's your family? I could brush it off. Oh, we're good, man. Me and my wife, we're like this, you know. We're like growing in Christ, praying, encouraging. Man, just, we're so holy. We could have done that. I could have done that. But no, I, right? My aunt Gary, yeah, we're just in the midst of conflict. My wife and I got into it last night. And single people don't judge us, okay? <laughs> All right? If you are just started dating, don't, don't say, oh, we'll never get, right? Married, I'm just talking to married people right now. Right? 
you know, we'll tune us out. But, oh, we just got into conflict last night, and we're still in the middle of it. And, you know, pray for me, pray for Seren. Right? Sharing honestly, but still trying to encourage Gary. And we're going through the whole Ethan thing where we thought we were going to lose him. Continue to ministry. My dad was in, you know, ICU, right? I'm still preaching the word. In the midst, sharing, pray for him. And we buried my dad, preaching, ministering. That's what we need to do. And Bob was going through heart surgery. Right? Mark is going through difficulty. All the pastors. That's, that's Paul's how he modeled ministry to us. And that's what we ought to follow. Right? Just a few more. Number five, not motivated by personal gain. Paul not only viewed ministry as a privilege, not only did ministry life on life, not only did he seek to model truth and boldly minister in the context of, in the midst of personal pain and loss, he was not motivated by personal gain. Chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or others. So he was not motivated by error, impurity, or any attempt to deceive, nor to please man. And as one of the proofs of this is that we never flattered you. We never used words to, to manipulate, to persuade. We didn't commend ourselves to, to, to you. He appeals to this fact as a proof of his own integrity. And then number six, nor did we seek glory from people, whether you, from you or others. So he wasn't doing ministry for himself. He wasn't on an ego trip. It's, it's a ego, it, is a, it, it is a source of ego and pride to do ministry. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy, don't, don't let a, a, a young believer be a deacon because you'll become conceited and become ensnared by the devil. Having the limelight, having the authority to teach the word of God and be in front of people can be a source of much pride, much conceit and ego. Paul said that was not his motivation for ministry. It was not glory from people, whether from you or for others. Let me ask you some questions. You can ask, ask these questions of your own heart and whether this is true for you. Do you truly serve and minister for the well-being of others or for yourself? Do you strive either passively or aggressively for personal glory in ministry? Are you ministering for self-fulfillment? Do you fish for compliments? Right. You go, oh, now how was my sermon? How is, how is our flock doing? How is, how is that activity? Right. It was good, huh? That was really good, huh? <laughs> the best you ever heard. Right. Do you lord over other people? Do you get just you get you just love like giving advice. You love giving orders. You love just telling people what to do. Right? You just, you just can't. You're just waiting for people to come to you. Or do you resist it? 
Are you humble? Are you cautious? Are you careful? Are you thoughtful? Before giving advice, before giving counsel, you pray, you consider scripture, you preface it by saying, you know what, I'm just, man, who am I to give you advice? Look at my life. Let me share with you the struggles I'm going through. But this is my, my perspective. This is not biblical. This is not doctrinal. This is not theological. This is extra biblical. So let me just share with you my opinion. Do you regularly rest and lay aside from ministry and work? So if you're doing ministry for self-glory, then it's a slave master. It's driving you because you're doing it for your own, own pride. You can't let go. But if you're doing it for the Lord, you understand Sabbath day rest. You understand what it is to rest from the Lord's work. Because God is working, God is in charge, and God's work will be done better without you and better without me. Few more guys, hang with me because I want to finish it in two sermons. Number six, you know, if you were to, if you were to uh, describe Paul's leadership style, how would you describe it? If you use the following words, you'd be right. Paul was this kind of a leader, like a nursing mother. He was gracious, he was kind, and he was gentle. If you use that picture and those words to describe Paul's leadership style, you'd be right. Chapter 2, verse 6b and 7. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. That's where NIV gets it wrong in the translation. It's not burden. The, the weak word beret is not burden. The context especially points that out. It's demands. Although we could have asserted our authority as apostles of Christ, we could have ordered you around and be, be, have been strong towards you. Instead, verse 7, but instead we were gentle among you. And he says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own. He was not a military commander. He was not a football coach. He was not the CEO of the church of Thessalonica. No, he was a, a mother like, caring for her child. I read this in one common, commentary. It said, People in the Eastern Mediterranean often considered mothers to be more affectionate than fathers. What? That's not just in Mediterranean. That's all over the world. Uh, that's, that's not helpful at all. Like, people there that consider moms more caring and gentle and affectionate than fathers. That's not just everywhere. Doubly for Koreans. I mean, man, like the way my wife cares for you know, Eleanor compared to me, if I cared for her, you know, she would get a bath once a month. I mean, right? she would change her clothes once a week. Moms are known for their kindness, patience, long-suffering, tender care. And that's how Paul described his own leadership. And that's the model that we need to follow as spiritual leaders. If the apostle of Paul was gentle and patient and kind, how much more regular guy like me? I'm just a regular guy. I'm no, there's no calling. I didn't meet the risen Lord. He didn't personally appoint me to be a pastor. Right? There's no calling upon anyone. How much more must we be humble and lowly and be gentle and kind as we lead God's people? Where did, where did Paul get this from? He got this from Christ. Matthew 11:29. All you are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So some questions 
Do you give grace to others? Right. Do you think the best? Right. Do you say hard things lovingly? You say hard things so graciously, so gently, so humbly that you're rebuking someone. You're paying them to the core and yet they love you more at the end because they know coming from a heart that is broken, that's agonizing over you. Right? Are you just so careful with your words? You know, you just... It's like a mom feeding an infant. They puree their food. When they're six months old, they cut it in small pieces, right? Dads would just give them a big steak, just eat it. Right? Mom, just cut it in small pieces so they can digest it well. Are you that kind of spiritual leader? Knowing the maturity of the person you're ministering to, you appropriately right? portion out spiritual food, correction, admonishment towards them. Final one, and we'll be done. All right. gentle, gracious, kind leader. Number seven, Paul modeled this. He not only loved God's people, he intensely liked the people he served. He intensely liked them. So Paul tells us it's not enough for us to love people. We need to like God's people and trust them into our care. Chapter 2, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves because you have become very dear to us. That's one word in the Greek, affectionately desirous, found only here in chapter 2, verse 8. It's not love. It means to have a kindly feeling, Affection, to long for someone, to yearn for someone. It's in the middle voice. It's your own desire, your own choice to like someone. And that's mature Christianity. An immature Christian loves all believers, but likes only certain people. Right? Immature believer, right? I love him because God loves him. I love her because Christ first loved me. And gave himself for me, so I love her. But I don't like her. That's immature Christianity. A spiritual leader is, I love him or her, and I like him or her. The people person. Loves people and likes people. And this makes a world of difference in ministry. Children, people that are under us, have this keen sense. So like... um, if you, you can tell if your manager likes you or not. Right? You, if you're a manager, you can't tell if your underlings like you or not, but you can tell if you're, right? You can tell, like children have this keen sense. They know it, if you like them or not. They can smell it a mile away. So if they sense that, oh, this person likes them, they'll run to, you know, right? they'll run to you. But they sense, oh, this person doesn't like me, they won't come to you. So children don't come to me. Right? They, they just, they just, I like you, but they, I just can't fake it because they, they can smell it a mile away. People know, people can sense whether you like them or not, right right away. And nothing closes a heart faster than when a person senses that you don't personally like or care for them, right? So I love you. Yeah, we all love one another. But if they can sense, wow, you don't like me, you don't think about me, you don't really care for me, nothing closes a heart faster than that. So Paul, for Paul, it wasn't just, I love you, everyone. He liked them. He was affectionately desirous to be with them. 
So some signs of you liking a person, right? Sharing yourself. Sharing yourself. And you share more about intimate things. You're showing them, you know, I trust you. I want to trust you. I like you. I want to share my life with you. You're creating intimacy in that way. When you share downtime with them, right? Some, you, know, you call me and say, I'll talk to you at church. Don't ever call me <laughs> after a Sunday. That's like, I don't like you. And you call me, oh, great, brother. How are you doing? Right? It's my day off. Right? Well, call me tomorrow. No, it's my day off. We'll hang out tomorrow. We'll hang out today. Downtime, right? Non-ministry time. You spend time together. You're telling them. You're personally invested in their lives. Right? You take... Um, personal interest in their interests. That's all parents. That's what we have to do, right? Well, you you want to you know, have a tea party? Great. I'll have a tea party with you, right? right? So you like NASCAR? Man, yeah, let's watch this NASCAR together, right? You like reading poetry? Let me see that book and read poetry with you, right? That's how you show I love you and I like you, and if that's important to you, I'm open to it as well, right? I told this to the you know, people, but leaders, but maybe we're sisters, like having pictures of them, right? Maybe we're sisters and brothers, right? But if you have pictures of all your friends, but not people that are spiritually in your life, you're telling them, these are my friends, and you're not a friend of mine, right? You're a project, right? you're a task, you're ministry, and these are my friends. Or remembering special days, right? Remembering special days. Those are ways to show that you care. So viewing ministry as a privilege, life on life, modeling truth, ministering in the midst of personal pain and loss, not being motivated by personal gain, gentle, gracious, kind leadership, liking people. 7 of 15 um, key marks of the Apostle Paul that we are to pay attention to and imitate in our lives, as we minister to one another. Let's pray. Lord, we see all these traits. Lord, we see all these traits in your life. We can see clearly where the Apostle Paul uh, got these traits from. He was imitating you. You did ministry, life on life. You modeled truth to the apostles and to us. Even on the cross, you were ministering to us. In the moment of your deepest pain and sorrow, when God the Father abandoned you, you were still praying for us. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You were not motivated by personal gain, anything in this world. You were gentle, gracious, and kind. And Lord, we know you loved us and you love us and you like us. You long for our fellowship. You long for us to be with you. Lord, uh, help us to be mindful of these uh, truths and make them alive in our lives. Not just in our heads, but be doers. Practice these things for the love of Christ to be seen in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.